verse 16 to 34. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God, and they have come to tell, us you, to tell you how to be saved. Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the de demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. Her master's hope of wealth were now shatter shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob of quick, uh, quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and, they, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely, severely beaten, and they were, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure that they didn't escape. So the jailer put them into the dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. And all the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoner had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at the hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire house rejoiced because they all believed in God. This is the word of God. Well, on behalf of the Reality Family Churches, grace and peace to you. Such a privilege to be here, and we are so grateful to be in partnership with this church financially and through prayer. Uh, last week, in anticipation of coming this Sunday, I asked our inter uh, intercessors, our, our prayer team, to write down some prayers of encouragement. So I want to deliver from across the pond prayers and encouragement for this church specifically. We love you. We're invested in this church, and we are so grateful to be able to see what God is doing in this congregation. And on top of that, um, you know, I have a personal connection, having lived here for a short amount of time, for one year, a little over a decade ago, um, in that one year, I feel like the Lord deeply connected me to this city and formed a forever love that I, for, for real, I can't shake. Uh, every other experience is always now going to be compared to London. 
And uh, just the last few days, been walking around as a proper tourist, just taking it all in. I went up to top, top of Primrose Hill with some like ambient music. I was just like, yes, Lord. And so it's so good to be back. Um, let's, let's go to the Lord and ask him to, to lead us in this time and to open up our, our eyes and hearts to him. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we thank you for your word to us, the timeless testimony of your grace. And what we may see as sort of sensational, may we today experience as real freedom, perseverance, and joy. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to see what has been offered to us in Jesus Christ? And would you fill us with faith to receive today? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a phrase from early Christians that went something like this, that the glory of God is man fully alive. In other words, God is most glorified in us as we are most alive in him. But perhaps it could be said a little bit differently. Perhaps it could be said like this, the glory of God is the church fully alive. Not just individuals, but men, women, and children together living lives changed by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and on mission in their cities. And throughout the book of Acts, we're given this timeless vision of a church that is alive, one that not only inspires us as we look back and read it as a sort of historic account, but also one that presently invites us to consider how we may experience this as well today. So the question is, what makes for a church that is alive? Again, that's a pretty sensational statement, church alive. But what makes for a church that is alive? And what we see illustrated in Acts 16 is that it is joy. And not just any kind of joy, but the kind of joy that appears in the most unlikely of circumstances. Martin Lloyd-Jones, over a half century ago, said that the greatest need of the hour is a revived and a joyful church. And I believe what was true then is equally true for us today. What does the world need most? What does the city of London need? And it's a joyful church. But let's be honest, this may seem like a very odd time to be talking about joy. In fact, some may argue that this is an inappropriate time for us to be talking about joy. We've just concluded two grueling years of life being turned upside down because of pandemic. Research recently conducted by uh, UCL has shown that despite the restrictions being lifted and COVID cases declining, there continues to be significant and steady declines in overall life satisfaction and happiness across the UK. There's also the massive amount of tension and anguish and hurt over in the invasion in Ukraine. A flood of unpleasant emotions as we watch sort of helplessly in horror 
And also as we wait anxiously to see what our nations are going to do and how our nations are going to get involved. I, I have a son who is approaching the eligible age for mandatory service in the case of a draft or conscription. And it's, it, it, it sheds a new light on the sort of tension that we're experiencing as a globe right now. And here we are in the middle of such a tense moment in history talking about joy as if we are blind or indifferent to the pressures and the pain, as if we are plugging our ears and burying our head in the sand and pretending everything's okay. But what we need to see here in the book of Acts is that there is a joy that is available to us that doesn't disregard suffering, it doesn't disregard the adversity that exists, but rather emerges as a sort of defiant joy. Willie James Jennings, a theologian, said that joy is an act of resistance against the forces of despair. Joy says no to hopelessness. That's why we sing today. That's why we celebrate. That's why we clap and we cheer. That is why we rejoice. It isn't disregarding. It is refusing to surrender to despair. It's refusing to allow suffering to have the final word over our lives, over our community, over our cities. Now, in anticipation of coming on this trip, I was thumbing through my bookshelf looking for a good book to read on the airplane and I found my wife's copy of Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying. <laughs> She's such a special woman. And I just love her personality. And I just love just the, 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 the way that she approaches such a bland topic like tidying up. And one of her methods is that you place the clutter of your life on the floor. And then you begin to touch each item one by one. And you know how it goes. If that item sparks joy <laughs> it sparks joy you, you keep it and if that item no longer sparks joy you discard it you 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 get rid of it you and in fact you first thank the item for being such a significant important vital part of your life and then you you get rid of it and and while this may be an extremely brilliant strategy for tidying up your flat or your you know, overflowing closet or whatever, it's a horrible strategy for navigating life. I have five children, for instance. <laughs> Could you imagine if there's any moment which, you know, God forbid, they are no, not, they're no longer sparking joy in my life. I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Just, I thank you for being such a significant part of my life, but it's a gum tree with you or whatever. But if we're to be honest, this is often how we treat life. We attach joy to things like people or relationships or career or education or finances or economy. We allow the ebbs and flows of life to control and to determine our joy. If things are going well, if all the you know, joy-sparking things are in place, then we're quite content. And if things are falling apart, you know, something has not turned out the way that we had planned, if things are going poorly, then we are devastated. And we all need to recognize that 
This approach causes us to be emotionally enslaved to our circumstance, to be chained to things, to people, to places, to circumstances. And as we do that, we give the power to control our joy to things that we ought not. When the Bible talks about joy, it does not mean a sort of circumstantial happiness. When the Bible talks about joy, it refers to a deep, durable delight in God. A sort of subterranean hope that carries us, whether we sense it or not. The kind that refuses to allow pain to define us. One that trusts that God's goodness and his mercy will have the last word in our lives. And through that trust causes us to rise above our circumstances. It gives us a sort of buoyancy in our lives. Now there's a lot that could be said about joy. And there's a lot that could be said particularly about Christian joy. But there are three things as we look at this passage that seem to emerge from this portion of Acts 16. And the first thing that we notice here is that joy carries us through trials. It's not so much that we carry joy as if we are big enough and joy is small enough to sort of fit in our minds or our hearts or our lives. But instead, joy is something that carries us. So let's consider the situation that Paul and Silas find themselves in. While in Philippi, they free a young woman who is oppressed and in slavery through the powerful name of Jesus Christ. There's a sermon in and of itself. But they've disrupted the broken, unjust system and they've challenged power in this city. And as a result, they are unfairly accused of disturbing the peace. And so the majority who have way too much to lose by the gospel message of freedom, join in beating them. And after they are brutally attacked, both by the people and the authorities in the city, the thrown in prison into this dark inner dungeon, fastened with stocks, chained to the wall, and left. This is their circumstance. There is no tangible, practical reason for joy. There is nothing sparking joy in Paul and Silas's life at this moment. Look at me again in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now sometimes you have to experience the gloom in order to experience true and lasting joy. And it's there when things were extremely bleak that they discovered a joy that rose above their circumstances, above their pain and their chains. And the question is, how? How on earth are Paul and Silas praying and praising God in this situation? And I believe the answer is this, that they have tethered their happiness to something outside of their jail cell. Clearly, they are chained to a wall, but they are attached to something else. Tertullian in the early church put it this way, the legs do not feel the chains when the heart's in heaven. Maybe a more contemporary example. 
in an interlude, an interlude uh, titled Sideline, an American hip-hop artist named J. Cole, maybe you're familiar, he tells a story of finding out that he had just been signed with a major labor, label record deal. And he tells the whole story from beginning to end. He says he gets the text while he's driving that he's just been signed. And then he's you know, celebrating or whatever, and then he says no more than 10 seconds later, he hears the sounds of sirens. He looks in the rearview mirror, and he sees that he's being pulled over by the police. And he'd been driving for a few years with a revoked license. And the next thing that he said is, is remarkable. He said that night in jail was far different than anything he could have ever imagined. And he said that he, he endured with resolve and hope, with his chin up, knowing how his future and his life had completely changed. His life was never going to look the same again, and it dramatically changed his night in jail, his experience of jail. And the question for us as God's people is how much more resolve and hope do we have through faith in Jesus Christ? How much more do we have to look forward to in eternity because of what God has done for us in his son, Jesus? You see, the joy of the Lord doesn't make challenges and suffering and setbacks enjoyable. Don't read this wrong. You know, like Paul and Silas are not like sick about this sort of joy. They're not celebrating the, the, the pain that they're experiencing. And it doesn't necessarily even make these things easy. But it does provide us strength and resolve knowing what is beyond the night. The psalmist would put it this way, that while weeping may last the night, joy comes in the morning. There's something on the horizon of tomorrow, so to speak, that changes my experience of sorrow in the night. You see, the only way to sustain joy when life is up and down, or just, to be honest, when life is down, is to attach it to something that is unshakable, something that won't ebb and flow. And my challenge to you is to find something in your life that will not let you down, something that will never change, something that will never wither away, something that will never go away, and anchor your heart to it. And I'm fairly confident that you will not find a single thing, a single opportunity, even a single person that even claims to fit that description other than Jesus Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 challenges us to do. He says in Hebrews 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, or in other words, tethering our hearts to Christ, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what the Bible is urging you to do, to do, uh, to do today, especially in the season that we find ourselves in. The Bible is urging you to attach your joy to the one who attached his joy to dying and rising for you. This is where true freedom is found. Through faith in Jesus, we are released from the power of sin. We are released 
from the power of death. We are released from the power of despair. In trusting in Christ, the true prison doors are swung wide open. This is how Paul and Silas sang before the doors were open. Some of you are like, I'd be singing too if the doors were open. They sang before the doors were opened. And this is how you too can sing in your darkest hours. The freedom that is ours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the second thing that we see here about joy, concerning joy, is that joy confounds the watching world. In other words, joy is shocking. Joy is shocking. It goes on and says that as Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, the prisoners were listening. And so as God's people raise their song in the night, the world begins to listen. This is the irresistible nature of joy. It's got such a powerful sort of communicable ability that it is capable of spreading very quickly. Now, in our moment of history, we are hyper aware of how things spread and are transmitted. But there's something about joy that is similar here. Willie James Jennings goes on and says that when you walk into a space marked by joy, it's infectious. Think about when you walk into a room and people are laughing, you don't even know what they're laughing about, but you're, you start to smile. You want in on what, what, what's so funny. You're drawn in. It's, it's infectious. It's, it's brought you in. You don't even know what they're talking about. He goes on to say, an individual comes into a space that is not their own, but it takes hold of them. It grasps them. We as God's people have been entrusted with this sort of infectious joy. One that spreads through gratitude. One that spreads through praise. One that has the ability to resound in our communities and will even draw men and women in. It's a vital part of our witness. It's a vital part of your witness, Reality Church. Joy, believe it or not. Look at the story. It begins... The night begins with Paul and Silas rejoicing alone, but it ends with an entire household joining in the praise. It begins with two, it ends and concludes in a multitude giving praise. Now, yes, we are living in a world that is marked by harshness and hostility. But the hope that we have is that our neighbors are listening for a new song to to cut through the noise. For music in their ears to surprise them with hope. A a picture that I have not been able to get out of my mind, especially over the last few weeks, is a picture of a man named Vedran Smelovich, who was also known as the cellist of Sarajevo. And in 1992, right in the middle of active war, In Bosnia, every single day he would put on his tuxedo and stand in these giant bomb craters and he would play his cello and he would fill the streets with these beautiful sounds giving the people, the neighboring people, hope that there was something that lies beyond the turmoil. Despite all of this ugliness, despite all of this harshness, Beauty will find a way. Acts says the other prisoners were listening. 
And likewise, as we lift our songs of joy, your family is listening. And your flatmates are listening. And your neighbors are listening. And your coworkers are listening. And your friends are listening. And even that person sitting next to you today, struggling in their faith, struggling to believe, struggling to lift their song, they're listening. They're listening. Now, we're not told how all the, the other prisoners ultimately responded to what was going on, but there's something remarkable about this story, and it's a detail that I've missed previously. It says that all the prisoners stayed. That's remarkable. Think about every movie where like, the, the, the jail cells are opened up and everyone vacates. Everyone leaves. Could you imagine just being another prisoner? You have no idea who this Paul and Silas is. You have no idea why they are singing, but you know that the jail cell has opened. Deuces, I'm out. I'm gone. <laughs> and they stayed. Why? We can only imagine that it was because of intrigue. You're kind of crazy singing here. But I'm quite interested. I got to know, why, why would you sing? They stick around long enough to hear the reason for their joy. What will the listening world hear from us? That's the question for us. Will we join the tide, the ever-growing tide of complaint and groaning and suspicion? Or will we also fill the air with the strange sounds of joy today. Now the last thing that we see about joy here is that joy confronts despair. It confronts despair. As Paul and Silas lifted their voice, it says in verses 26 through 29, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, notice something about joy here. Joy moved outward and not inward. We often think about joy as a sort of personal, sort of selfish, pleasure-seeking emotion. Joy is mine. I protect my joy. Not so with biblical joy. Biblical joy is active. Biblical joy is on the move. Biblical joy moves outward to confront despair in others. Now, I want to treat something here in the scriptures very carefully, but also very clearly and explicitly. A man was prepared to take his life, ready to commit suicide, thinking that there was no hope for him now. But then Paul and Silas speak out. They, in fact, they shout and convince him that there was a reason to live. Now, I want you to step back and look at the dynamics that are happening here. 
Because when these two very different approaches to despair collide, there's the approach of Paul and Silas, which is to sing in their despair, and there's the approach of the jailer to end his life in despair. When these two very different approaches to despair collide, joy triumphs. Joy wins. Joy conquers despair. And with this historic moment that we are experiencing pandemic stress, economic pressures, looming war. There are so many opportunities for people today to feel hopeless and like giving up. But the hope that we receive through Jesus gives us all the more reason to live, all the more reason to carry on. Death, sorrow, sickness, war, pain, they are real. Every ambulance sound reminds us of this. But the gospel assures us that they are no longer final. They're real, but they just won't have the last word. A member of the church that I pastor uh, emailed me the day that I was leaving to come here asking for biblical guidance for a number of conversations that she's been having with her patients. She's a nurse in hospital, and over the last few weeks, at her specific hospital, they've seen a record number of attempted suicides. Now, you would have thought that that would have been the case maybe two years ago. No, now. And despite all of her nervousness, despite all of her self-consciousness, despite all the red, red tape or, you know, restrictions, you know, concerning her job and her ability to share the gospel with some of her patients, she knows that God has placed her in this role for a purpose. And she knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that she has been entrusted with the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ for such a time as this. And life and eternity is on the line. We as God's joy-filled people in this particular moment have a responsibility to the world And that responsibility is to boldly confront the forces of despair that attempt to drive people to death. And I mean it's a responsibility. C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And I would add, joy is the serious business of the church. So in conclusion... What we see is as this man puts down his sword and decides in this moment to no longer end his life but to live, he asks an extremely important question. Verse 30, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Think about this. Consider what's going on here. Paul and Silas's dramatically different approach to despair was so captivating to him. So mind-boggling. So much so that the jailer asks, how can I get in on this too? Whatever it is that you're experiencing, how do I get this too? And they respond by telling him how any one of us can get in on this as well. Verse 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Paul's answer here gets right to the heart 
of what we would call gospel joy. Not only is joy not determined by your circumstances, but what we see here is that joy is not determined by you at all. Joy is based on who Jesus is. Joy is based on what Jesus has done for us. And this durable, defiant joy comes to us through trusting in Jesus. It's about seeing and delighting in his unchanging worth. It's about relying upon his finished work on the cross on our behalf. It's about leaning in with assurance in light of his promise that he is making all things new. This is what fills us with joy. And this is what sustains us with that joy, even when things get bleak. And this is a joy that he's making available to any and every single one of us who would trust in him. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this joy that is ours in Jesus. And like the jailer, we say we want in on this. God, I recognize that there's something about joy that we just can't wrap our minds around. Some experience that just doesn't make logical sense. But I pray today that we would all stop approaching joy as if it's something that we possess, something small enough to fit into our lives. And may we see it as something bigger than ourselves, something that consumes us, something that sustains us, something that is lasting and large because it is from you. And would you captivate us with that joy today as well? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.